Welcome. You're listening to Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and this is America's Web Radio. Today in studio, I have with me David Donaldson, who is the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center. And we're going to talk about the new report that was just released this week. Uh, on the health effects of cannabis and cannabinoids, the current state of the evidence, and recommendations for research. This report was um, put out by the Health and Medicine Division of the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. This used to be the Institute of Medicine, and some of the earlier reports that were released a number of years ago, were listed under the Institute of Medicine. But this is a very important report, and I think a very timely one, because many states are still considering increasing access to marijuana and certainly increasing access to medical marijuana. I know here in Georgia we're just very new into our legislative sessions, but already three bills have been proposed that affect the number of conditions that medical cannabis oil, which is our definition here in Georgia, should have uh, expanded conditions that it would be available for and also some changes in the concentration and the availability. There is additional legislation that's being proposed that would allow cultivation and would allow distribution of this medication directly. So I think it's important for all of us to really look at what the literature says about medical use of these um, of this particular substance and see what is the real truth because some of this information may surprise you when you really look at this report. Now this report's 440 pages but if you google um, health report on cannabis you will get access to this and you can actually download it or you can read it online. So if you are really interested then I would suggest that you spend a little time with this report but we're going to talk about it in some detail today. So thank you for being here, David. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Um, um, to me, in looking at, at this report, what it really highlighted was how much we really just don't know. And, and you know, it, it really focuses on how important it is that we actually do know this because, the, as you were highlighting here in Georgia, the, the steady pressure to make marijuana medically legal in all the states and in many of the states recreationally legal um, is there and we need to stop just pretending we know everything there is about this whether it's safe or not safe and, and be able to talk about it with some some real clarity and I think part of the difficulty as you're highlighting this David is the reason that we don't know a lot is because this whole legislation has gone completely outside normal channels for which a medicine would be evaluated and would be recommended for um, use by the American public. This has completely gone outside of that and disregarded the FDA, disregarded the DEA in many cases because the DEA still has marijuana listed as a Schedule One, meaning no medical use, and it's not um, legal 
not legal to send it across state lines, certainly, and lots of debate back and forth about what this all means, that states have just gone ahead and said, well, we don't care what the federal law is, our state law is going to be different. So we've bypassed that. We've bypassed the normal centers of excellence and centers of research that do a lot of the research on pharmaceuticals and new ways of treating illnesses and um, helping to improve physical, emotional health. We've gone outside the normal distribution centers, so rather than a closed circuit, if you think about what happens with the pharmacy, uh, pharmaceutical medication, the raw ingredients are carefully monitored and, and um, kept very close track of. It's taken to the manufacturer. The manufacturer then makes the substance according to the regulations that include safety, sanitary conditions, um, all of these kinds of things. It is packaged. It is then sent to the pharmacies, and the pharmacists are keeping track of the medications. They're making sure that the prescription that has been written is legal and appropriate, and they are dispensing the medication according to the doctor's orders. So we have this very involved system for a good reason, because even with some of the medicines that do get approved, we know that medications sometimes have to be withdrawn from the market because as they continue to evaluate the medicine, as doctors and hospitals and research centers gather more information that is sent back to the FDA, it's sent back to the pharmaceutical company, and sometimes we find that there are really tragic, horrible side effects, things that were not expected, and sometimes the medication is withdrawn from the market, saying we're not going to make this medicine available, it is not safe. So... This has been an interesting thing that we just completely bypassed all that, and that's one of the reasons that we don't have a large body of knowledge and information about the efficacy and the safety of these products. Um, the piece that I keep thinking about with that is that for so long with the war on drugs and having it scheduled as a, as a, class, as a class one, all of that was stopped, right? you know, and so you could not do research on it. You couldn't get access to it unless you were at one particular university in the South that nobody really knows actually exists. <laughs> um, and, and so the, the research wasn't done, but there were people using marijuana. Marijuana has been a part of our society for thousands of years. Thousands of years. It's been a part of popular com- culture since at least the turn of the century turn of the 20th century right um and so we have seen it and and we've seen addictive patterns we've seen you know patterns that have that that appear to be true about marijuana um you know it's a real classic idea that for the person who's a marijuana addict the first time they smoke it it doesn't do much the second time they smoke it it doesn't do much the third time they smoke it it lights up their brain and they want to use it every day after that and, and their life just pretty much um declines after that. So we've seen this pattern, but we don't know that that's actually statistically true. Um, and, and the research hasn't been able to be done because the doors have all been kept pretty much 
sealed. Um, so at least now the, the government is saying we have to stop and look and, and know what we're talking about with this chemical. Yes, yeah, so a big part of this uh, report is also recommendations for further research and further study. And one of the things that they talk about very clearly in here is that there needs to be better access to a consistent type of marijuana so that my study using this marijuana is the same as your study using this marijuana. Because are we comparing apples to apples or are we comparing apples to donuts? We don't know because everyone is sourcing their marijuana in different ways and using different forms. So some very basic ideas for people that do research, but some very basic things need to be put in place, some standards, what are the tools that we're going to be using to compare whether this is effective or not, a side effect or not. All of these things are outlined in this report, and I think that is a very helpful thing, because most all of the medical societies are opposed to medical marijuana, but they're not opposed to research, good quality, double-blind, evidence-based research on is, is this major substance, the, the um, marijuana plant itself, or are there elements from the marijuana plant that may be helpful? So we don't tell people to treat their pain by going out and growing a poppy plant in their yard and then waiting for the seeds and the, um, the leaves to fall off and then getting the sap out of the pod and getting the seeds out and cooking that down and making their uh, opioid or opiate medication and taking that, uh, we know that you can extract that and from that you can get at least three different types of pain relievers that are different. So codeine is different than morphine, is different than heroin. And these different substances all come from the same plant and some are used in different situations. One, of course, is a Schedule One and not legal in this country. So finding medical um, answers, finding pharmaceuticals from nature, from plants, from botany, goes way back. But we don't usually have people growing digitalis in their backyard, the digitalis plants, so that they are foxgloves, so that they can have digitalis. So we try and make sure that we know exactly which part of the plant how much and for what conditions we use it. So I'm sure many of the audience, and especially the young scientists, are wanting to know what digitalis is. <laughs> it's a medication that helps regulate heart rate. And you can just go pick some plant and, mm -hmm. and start regulating your own heart rate. Technically, okay. yes. Um, I don't think most doctors would suggest that you do that. But certainly much of what we know about uh, medications that can be helpful came from shaman, from um, medical practitioners in various cultures and countries, and from people who study botany. We know that um, um, white willow bark, for example, the bark off a white willow tree 
ha- contains a substance that's very helpful for pain and for swelling. And it actually is um, a salicylate, which is like aspirin. Okay. Now, you can go out into your yard if you have a white willow tree, and you can scrape the bark off of that, and you can make a tea or a compress or something out of it, and you can get some relief for, for pain, but it's usually safer and... Um, you know more about what to expect if you go to the pharmacy and buy a bottle of aspirin. Well, and what's interesting is when you go to the pharmacy and buy a bottle of aspirin or when you see your doctor and get a prescription, part of what they have to do is tell you this is these are the things that it's going to treat mm-hmm. and these are the risks that you're going to experience and they go all the way through the list and everybody knows from TV commercials that that list is extensive. <laughs> the, right. the lawyers speak at the end of the commercial that takes it down to much worse than what it could be. Um, and, and with this current route that marijuana is taking to get to the public, we don't have the ability to do that. We can't actually sit down and say, okay, we are going to use this marijuana to treat your anxiety, but part of what you might also discover is that you're going to lose the motivation to get up and take care of anything else you need to do with your life and and give them all of these risk factors that we probably could predict, but we don't know it as a fact. Right, and we don't know drug-drug interactions. And another thing that this particular report highlighted is that there are special populations that really need more research. So what about children? What about adolescents? What about pregnant women? What about the elderly? Because we know the metabolism of drugs are different in these populations, and so the effects may be very different. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about this report. Please stay tuned. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. Learn strategies to protect you and your family. In the age of Obamacare. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. And with me today is David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. We're talking about the report from the former Institute of Medicine. It's now called Health and Medicine Division of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. This um, report is called The Health Effects of Cannabis and Cannabinoids, The Current State of Evidence and Recommendations for Research. This is a 440-page document. It is uh, certainly one that we have needed, and a lot of folks throughout the country have been looking forward to having access to the report since it was announced back in March of 2016 that this group was going to come together and look at uh, the world's literature and the science that is available for various and sundry different applications of the use of marijuana for treatment of diseases. Also looks at some of the risks and some of the problems that they have found associated with marijuana use. But I thought, David, before we did that and talk more specifically about the findings of the report, it might be helpful to back up for a minute because many people want to know why on a scientific level might a researcher think that marijuana would be helpful for mood regulation or for treatment of anxiety or for help with pain? So I think in order to understand that, we probably ought to back up a bit and talk about the endocannabinoid system in the brain. Um, certainly when you hear about California, and, and since they've had medical marijuana in California for a while, the, the stereotype is that you can get any doctor to write you a script for anything and take it into any right. of the clinics. And there is a breed of marijuana in there that's going to be available for any of the any problem that you have, um, and and that's probably not totally accurate. <laughs> yes. Um, but looking at the systems that that marijuana does actually impact or or mimic, um, I think is is definitely helpful. So in our brain, we have this wide system of endocannabinoid receptors, not just in the pleasure center of the brain, although they are there. But they are in our prefrontal cortex, our area of our brain that makes decisions, weighs and balances problems. They're in our thalamus, which is the part of the brain that regulates our appetite and our sleep-wake cycle. We find them in the limbic system, which is the part of the brain that regulates our mood and deals with things like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, there are these receptors in that part of the brain. There are receptors in the cerebellum, 
which is not just for balance, but we know also very important in how quickly we process information and how quickly we learn. So this system is in our body, and as we are growing and developing, it becomes very important because it's part of the reward system and not in the same way that we think about the dopamine system, which is the high, but we think about the reward system in the brain that helps us to keep going and to do things like continue to strive to learn to walk, that helps us continue to strive in school to learn to do our um, arithmetic and learn our colors and, and to read. It's the system that helps us with motivation and learning. It's the system that helps us to be willing to practice every day after school our dunk shot um, so that we can play basketball. It helps reward us. It helps us feel good when we've done a good job. It helps us keep going through some very tedious and often quite difficult things that we are required to do <laughs> as we grow up. And this system is really important in, in being motivated to learn and being motivated to continue to strive and in being able to regulate our mood and all of these other systems. So as the researchers look around and think, well, if it can affect appetite and it can affect mood, then maybe it would be helpful if someone was um, losing a lot of weight because they had a, an illness like HIV AIDS or they were having cancer treatment. So when you think about the wide variety of applications that this particular study looks at, all of the different problems that we see that are being wondered about and have some research on, it makes sense if you understand how widespread this endocannabinoid system is in our brain. It's almost in every location in our brain. And because um, the marijuana and the um, endocannabinoids, which are these little communicators, these little neurotransmitters, they're fat-soluble. And so they stay in the system for a long time. They have their action for a long time. And marijuana, when we smoke it or we eat it or we dab it or however we're going to be using it, the amount of marijuana that just saturates our brain is astonishing. It's way more than we see with the normal amounts of endocannabinoids that are released throughout our day and released throughout our lives. So one of the reasons that we really worry with kids in particular is that the endocannabinoid system, as hopefully I've explained, is so important in kids learning to do the things that they need to learn to do and to be motivated to continue to try. But, and I think that that's the part that's it's, it's difficult to get a hold of. The, the idea that with most addictions, it's hitting the dopamine reward system. So with most addictions, we're looking at you get this massive reward for, for the right. using. You get the euphoria and you get the um, the bliss that comes from the heroin or from the alcohol. 
and you get a little of, of that with marijuana, but that's not the the bigger piece with marijuana. It's more of the chill drug, the 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 dope head, where you you're just being dopey. You're just kind of being goofy and relaxed, and you don't have really the motivation to do anything. Right. Um, but also, you don't see that there's any problem with that. Right. We've just flooded the system with way more stimulation than it would ever get just in regular day. So you smoke marijuana. gets into your brain very quickly because it comes in through your lungs, goes right up your carotid arteries, and then just spreads out throughout your brain. And it overwhelms these receptors. So we know in our body system that if, for example, you decide you're going to override your testosterone system because you want to be a weightlifter and you want to excel at athletics. And so rather than waiting for your body to make normal amounts of testosterone, you're going to start to give yourself testosterone injections. So you get way more than the usual amount that an adult male would have. And because of that, your own system just completely shuts down. It says, oh, I don't have to work. Because the testosterone's already being made. It's already being released. So it, st- it shuts down and stops working. When the brain receives this flood of cannabinoids from the marijuana that are very similar to our endocannabinoids, endo meaning within, our own natural cannabinoids, that system shuts down. And... I know that you see this very common pattern of what happens, particularly with young people, can with adults too, but with young people who first start to use marijuana. This whole idea that things really change for them. Um, definitely what we see with, with the ones that end up at, at our program is their motivation to do anything else went away. And, and we often actually see a bit of anger and agitation at people who, who continue to try to push them to be who they were beforehand, the ones who knew them as an athlete or knew them as a good student, and they'll, they'll suddenly realize the drastic change because it's, it is that drastic. You know, they go from being a really good student to not getting up to go to school or not turning in work. And, and so frustrated family members and friends and spouses will push um, them to be who they know they can be, and the other person, the person that's discovered marijuana, will not um, respond to that. Not, not very well at all. And so you see the the kid that has a change. Uh, parents will sometimes describe in their personality. They are no longer interested in going to sports practice. They often drop off teams. They are no longer motivated to do well in school. And like you say, they don't go to school. They don't turn in their assignments. This is a time when (laughs) that other diagnosis that's a little bit difficult for us to deal with of ADD comes into play because often now the young person says, I can't remember. I forgot I was supposed to do that. I, I can't concentrate. That I can't really focus on school. And so... The well-meaning doctor and family members say, oh, it must be ADD. Let's give them stimulants 
not doing a drug test and not ruling out the idea that they're probably marijuana toxic and that it has overwhelmed this normal motivation system and that the person no longer has interest in things that used to be really rewarding to them and they no longer want to do the work that it would take to get whatever little pleasure they might get because they can get it so much more intensely and so much easier by just smoking a joint. One of our um, patients who who we had a while back who also has a 15-year-old son, um, when he first started hearing this lecture about the endocrine endocannabinoid system, um, it, it really highlighted for him the changes that it created. Because for him, um, the son was, was well on his way to being a star athlete and was just really excelling incredibly well in his sport um, and would be up every day practicing and would practice before and after school, and that was giving him joy and motivation. And then um, earlier in that same summer had discovered marijuana with his friends and and wanted to drop the sport, wanted to, you know, just dr- kind of drop out of life that quickly. I mean, it was that quick of a turnaround for him. And and being able to see from, from the discussions around this that once upon a time he had to work really hard to get the same rewards that right. marijuana was giving him with one puff um, completely changed this person. And they move from being social animals. They move from wanting to be out with their peers and out, to being very isolated, being on their own, sitting in their rooms, shutting everybody and everything out. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we'll talk more about this report and how important this system is in our brain. Thanks for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. 
Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Welcome back to Detailing Addiction, and I have with me today in studio David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. We're talking about this important report that was released this week, and I think that um, what we've seen over the last 20 years are some major changes in the way in which um, the public as well as um public policies have changed in terms of viewing the, the cannabis issue. To date, 28 states and the District of Columbia have legalized cannabis for the treatment of medical conditions. Eight of these states and the District of um, Columbia have also legalized cannabis for recreational use. This is one of the conversations we were having offline, which is not usually do we have a uh, something that is termed a medication that then gets um, also legally released for recreational use. We don't see that very often, but in this case, that is certainly the process that we're seeing. Yeah, in our conversation, we actually were listing a lot of drugs that people do use recreationally, but in none of the cases has that process been, it was a medication, and now we want you to use it this way. This is, I think, a, a very unique piece in, in that it's the first time this has really happened. So there's a lot of motivation. There's a lot of money riding on this process happening. And I think one of the effects, and it was probably an intended effect of bringing it as a medicine first, was that it reduces people's concern about it. They think of it as uh, a, a different entity. It's no longer scary. It's no longer thought of as illicit. It's a medicine. So as our concerns about is this legal or not, um, that kind of gets pushed to the side with the states independently making these choices. But also now that it's a, a medicine, people are not necessarily thinking of it in terms of something that could be dangerous or could be bad. So this whole change has happened, and we know that um, the use of cannabis has gone up over the last um, 15 years or so. Because of this, in March of 2016, the Health and Medicine Division of the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, we're going to just start calling them the National Academies, uh, they asked to convene a panel of experts to look at and do a comprehensive review of the literature regarding the health effects of cannabis use and or its constituents, so the CBD oil that is sometimes referred to. And they wanted to know what has happened since the last publication by the Institute of Medicine, which was in 1999. So everything that has been available in the world literature since 1999 was asked by these 16 experts to review. 
Now, experts were in the area of marijuana itself, addiction, oncology, cardiology, neurodevelopment, respiratory diseases, pediatric and adolescent health, immunology, toxicology, preclinical research, epidemiology, system review, and public health. In addition, uh, there were state, federal, and some non-government agencies that contributed to the funding of this study, including things like the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, California Department of Public Health, Robert um, W. Woodruff Foundation, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and Washington State um, Department of Health as well as some others. So these folks um, went through and they were asked to look at what was happening to pay particular attention to problems within the research they were reading to look at if it was available and to report on special populations like, as we talked before the break, the elderly, children, um, pregnant women in particular, and to um, review this information and provide some guidance. So they looked at an extensive search of relevant databases such as Medline, Embase, the Cochrane database of systemic reviews. Now, uh, Cochrane is one of the things that a lot of doctors use in terms of really trying to find meta-analysis, which are large studies looking at multiple studies. Um, uh, about health, safety, or efficacy of a certain type of treatment, not just medication. Psych Inform. So as they did their initial search, they found 24,000 abstracts of articles that contained information about marijuana or one of its components. So they decided that they needed to really pare this down a bit. So they removed anything that wasn't published in English. They removed case reports, editorials, studies by, quote, anonymous, end quote, authors, conference abstracts, and commentaries. So things that didn't have data and some kind of statistical evaluation that were more opinions or individual case reports, those were removed. When they brought this together, they finally came up with about 10,700 abstracts that they reviewed to come up with the, um, the recommendations that they have in this particular report. And when they're looking at the evidence, and we're going to make some references to this, so we wanted to explain it a little bit. They look at um, evidence that is conclusive. And this is very strong evidence from randomized controlled trials that support the conclusion um, that it's either effective or ineffective and that these are good quality studies with no credible oppositional findings. So there's um, a firm conclusion can be made with a conclusive evidence level. I don't believe that there were any of these studies that were felt to be a conclusive. That's the highest level of evidence. 
um, that we find. There were a number of them, though, were, that were considered substantial evidence. So there is, in this particular category, strong evidence to make a conclusion, and there are good supportive findings from quality studies and very few or no credible oppositions. Firm conclusions, but sometimes minor limitations, uh, cannot be ruled out. So this is really strong, but maybe some limitations. Then we look at moderate evidence where there is some evidence to conclude that cannabis or cannabinoids are effective or ineffective, that the studies were listed as being fair to good quality with very few or no credible oppositional findings, and that general conclusions could be made, but there are a number of limitations that can't be ruled out with any level of reasonable confidence. So some good, fair to good studies, but we can't go hog wild over this one. Limited evidence means there's weak evidence to support a conclusion that there Studies are only listed as being fair quality or they're mixed findings. Most favor one conclusion, but that doesn't mean all the studies that they looked at favored the same conclusion. And there's significant uncertainty as to how to really remove the compounding variables or chance or bias. And then no or insufficient um, means there's just um, a single study or a study, multiple studies that had mixed results, or that it hadn't been studied at all. So no evidence does not necessarily mean it's negative. So I think we have to keep that in mind. It just means it hasn't been studied or there hasn't been anything sufficiently done or done well enough for us to make any conclusion about it. So... Those are the levels of confidence that we have in the studies when we look at this. And so, again, with all of this time and with the 10,000 studies they looked at at this point in time, there's none of them that they're able to say conclusively at, at the top level, at the A1 level, that they know this for sure about marijuana at this point in time. Right. So um, they think that there is potentially conclusive or substantial evidence for three major areas that marijuana would be useful for medically. One is for the treatment of uh, chronic pain in adults. Number two, as an anti-emetic, or meaning an anti-nausea medication, used for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. And these are from oral cannabinoids. So these are by the, the medications probably like Marinol, uh, which are the legalized forms, um, the, the pharmaceutical-grade uh, medications for which the indication is for nausea and vomiting. So, so the studies done to support those medications are probably the studies that were looked at. Right. To support, to support these because they've already done that research. Right, that and that medication is already available and has been since the mid-1980s. So this last one is that there may be substantial evidence um, for improvement in patient-reported multiple sclerosis spasticity. And again, this is from the oral cannabinoids. This is from the medications. Now, 
when we go down to find out whether or not the clinician measures of spasticity. So when the patients report my spasticity, my, the tightness in my muscles is better when I take this oral form, this Marinol product, that a lot of patients report that. But when we go down and we ask the clinicians, the neurologists, the physical therapists, the other folks that are treating these people, how well their spasticity, this tightness in their muscle, the contractures are improving, that's only limited evidence. So the actual physical observation by the treating professionals is limited and not really holding, but patients seem to think it's helpful. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about some of this evidence. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. You're listening to Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Today we're looking at the report on the health effects of cannabis and cannabinoids, the current state of the evidence and recommendations for research. So we went through how the studies were reviewed and we looked at what level they rated the evidence, and we talked about the main conclusions in terms of things that there was substantial evidence to support. So the first one is for treatment of chronic pain in adults, 
The second is the anti-emetic effect of taking the prescription medications. Marinol is one that contain, that is cannabis, and um, that has been around for a long time. And then we also have um, substantial evidence for improving patient-reported multiple sclerosis spasticity. That has a bit of ca- um, caveat to it, though, because when we look at the clinician's evaluation of those same people's level of spasticity, we find that there's limited evidence that there is any improvement. But the patients seem to think that. And, David, you made a good point. Well, I, I just thought that was so interesting in the sense that, that the patient's perception of the situation was so different from the clinician's. And we see that um, with with just our regular clinical use in the sense that patients will not see the impact that marijuana is having on their life while their loved ones are seeing it and while people around them are seeing it, that their perception is, I'm fine, leave me alone, and and they're not they are not perceiving their world the same way as the people around them. Right, which is one of the problems. So we know that there's moderate evidence to support cannabis or cannabinoids for um, uh, short-term sleep outcomes in individuals with sleep disturbances associated with sleep apnea. Uh, fibromyalgia, chronic pain, or multiple sclerosis. And um, again, we find that there is limited evidence in cannabis or cannabinoids being effective for increasing appetite or decreasing weight loss associated with HIV AIDS. Now, this is quite a disappointment. That was one of the early applications of the medication Marinol. In fact, that was one of the first times I ever prescribed that medicine was back in the late 80s, early 90s for some of my HIV AIDS patients who had lost so much weight, but the evidence is limited for that. Um, There is very little um, limited evidence that it's going to improve the symptoms of Tourette's and and this one I find really interesting. There's very little evidence that it's going to improve the social anxieties associated with public speaking, with um, with having to, to perform in public, the performance anxiety, because part of what the patient often reports is that it took away anxiety. It helped me to function better. It helped me to connect with people easier. So, again, here's a situation where the research isn't showing that it's at all doing what the patient's perception has been. And PTSD has been one of the big ones that many states have approved medical cannabis for, but when we look at the evidence um, of there's very limited, in fact, there's only a single study, um, a fair quality study that showed any improving in the symptoms of PTSD. So not um, not strong evidence for using it in that condition. Um, so again, it doesn't mean that it might not. They might not someday find there is good evidence for it, but there's not evidence right now. Right. And it's one of the things that it's being prescribed for in the places where where they're, they're actually doing scripts for mar- medical marijuana. Right. I find that interesting because I think the VA will use it now. Um, for that indication. So hopefully a lot of agencies, a lot of 
communities and states will take a look at some of the indications that they are approving it for and either do more studies or uh, limit access, hopefully. There's limited evidence that cannabis or cannabinoids are ineffective for improving symptoms associated with dementia um, or improving intraocular pressure associated with glaucoma. Um, Reduce or reducing depressive symptoms in individuals with chronic pain or multiple sclerosis. So, again, poor quality studies, limited studies, that it's helpful in these conditions. No or insufficient evidence to support or refute the conclusion that cannabis or cannabinoids are effective for the treatment of cancers, including glioma, which is one of the um, brain um, tumors, cancer-associated uh, weight loss, um, symptoms of irritable bowel, uh, again, no or insufficient evidence to support epilepsy, another big one, and we see especially for epileptic disorders in children. Uh, this is a really scary thing, again, understanding that you are now overwhelming, flooding these receptors and shutting down the child's own natural endocannabinoid centers makes you really think want to think very carefully and very closely about whether to use it in children with seizures in children with autism um, that's one of the things that's being touted for here in Georgia and that's a scary thought that um, there's limited evidence to support and that there is um, a lot of evidence to indicate this could be problematic for kids so there's limited evidence for symptoms associated with um, ALS or paralysis due to spinal cord. Um, there's limited uh, evidence for Parkinson's disease, dystonia. There's limited or no evidence that it will help in achieving abstinence from other addictive substances. I've seen this several times uh, where people are saying, well, we're going to use pot to help get people off of heroin or other substances and there's really not there's limited no evidence, evidence or insufficient evidence to help people with that <laughs> i was surprised actually with that the dystonia i would have would have my just natural assumption would have thought okay it chills you out it relaxes you you would think that that would be an area it would be effective for but again not a no, it does not seem to be having the effects on the peripheral nervous system, which would be the nerves um, that would be more associated with Parkinson's disease, with multiple sclerosis, with, this, um, with dystonias, with spinal cord injuries. The effects are central, so they are in the brain, and it may alter the person's perception of what's going on, but in terms of actual improving function, it's evidence is not there to support that. So it does look like this is pointing towards the idea that it does change a person's perception of reality, but it doesn't really actually change the reality. Exactly. Part of what the, the studies are looking at with schizophrenia um, is that there is, I believe I read it correctly, that there is some evidence that it does increase the risk of schizophrenia, in particular with males. Um, and for a substance that's that's causing a change in perception, that is particularly uh, troublesome. 
Uh, absolutely. In fact, that is one of the, the areas that we know that there are some substantial problems that they do find evidence for, and that's that if a woman is using uh, marijuana during pregnancy, that the baby is going to be low birth weight. Um, there is um, moderate evidence that a person using cannabis is going to have uh, problems in the cognitive domains of learning, memory, and attention. There, there is, there is substantial evidence that it's going to increase their their connection with motor vehicle accidents. Yes, in fact, the studies in Colorado show. I think it was from 2006. I could be wrong about that, but I think it's 2006 to 2014. There was a 150 percent increase in fatal car accidents involving marijuana. Now, as um, my husband pointed out to me, that's an increase from 37 to 94, and compared to I think it was 175. Uh, motor vehicle deaths associated in Colorado that same year that there was 97 associated with marijuana, the 175 associated with alcohol. So alcohol still much bigger problem, but I think that is a pretty big increase in uh, in death. Although the numbers don't necessarily support that. So um, we know that. Um, we are finding that uh, it does make problems with schizophrenia uh, worsen, that it does cause more problems for males in terms of increasing their risk of smoking and use of alcohol, and that um, there is uh, evidence to show that earlier the person begins to use cannabis, the more likely they're going to have a chronic problem. So I would encourage those of you who are interested in this to go and Google the study and be ready to um, discuss it appropriately with legislators. And we'll see you all next week on Detailing Addiction. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed